Um, we are looking at three scripture passages today in um, Amos, Mark, and Galatians, and we're talking about family. Now, all of us have wonderful families, just the greatest families in the whole world, and we never have any difficulty, any problems whatsoever. So here's the good news. If you are a person of scripture and you've read about uh, Genesis especially, does it not make you feel really good about who you are and your family? I mean, we have the most dysfunctional families ever demonstrated in the Bible. So I'm figuring, boy, if these are God's people, we're in like Flint. We're okay. We could, you know, we could do this because they were, um, it, it just did not uh, tend to go well. If you remember, it started okay, and then we had Jacob, who loved Rachel, but had to first marry Leah. And if you want to know how the two kingdoms, or the kingdom of Israel got divided into two, that's where it began. So uh, you always talk about a household divided, and you have that difficulty. So we're going to, I think I'm going to just read through the whole scripture, and then uh, let me ask you what kind of pops out for you. But we really are talking about family and what that means to be in the family of God. Most of us uh, define that by our own family. So you can, it's hard to separate that. And sometimes that can be a great thing and sometimes it can be difficult. But that's where we want to go today. So let me offer a prayer for us. I'll read scripture, ask you a couple things that come out to you, and then I will... I will race through the text just to highlight some things that I think help us understand uh, a little bit about um, the purpose of life together, um, God's family. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, we thank you for an opportunity to come together. Holy Spirit of God, you have breathed life into these words. Inspire them, inspire the people who wrote them, Lord, we ask that you would inspire us and enlighten us. And on this day of Yom Kippur, a day of atonement, the most holy day in the Jewish tradition, may we reflect on the, our own sin in our lives, both taking a moment to confess, Lord God, that we do not always walk with you the way that we should. We do not always do as you have commanded us. But we do know, Lord, that you are a forgiving God, long-suffering and that through Jesus Christ, your son, the way that we come to not only confess our sins, but to be assured of forgiveness. May all communities know you, Lord God, through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you've read the book Life Together, um, you would know that um, there's a part in that book that talks about confessing to one another. And we are great at silent confession. We're great at corporate confession where everybody else writes the prayer. We just have to say it. But can you imagine sitting down face to face and saying, okay, let me tell you about my own personal sin. It's not something that we embrace easily. Am I correct with that? Does that make sense to you? It sure makes sense to me. All right, here we go. We're going to start in Amos. And uh, here's what Amos writes in chapter 3. Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You alone have I known and all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Is this on loudly enough for you? Can you hear me okay? Okay, great. Thank you. And then in Mark 3, 
Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around, and they said to him, and I'm adding the words that are in Greek here for emphasis. We'll get back to those. Behold, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Behold, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And then in Galatians, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, ladies, what are things that just jump out to you? Great, so that beyond our own um, organic family or, or biological family, we are origin, family of origin, we um, have a larger family, and it's a community that God calls us into, and that is a blessing. We have to remember that sometimes. <laughs> We're blessed by that. That's right, we are engrafted, and there we are. We're all part of that. Abraham, you will be a blessing, and all nations will be blessed through you. So we all have that. Um, John Perkins wrote a book, One Blood, and he talks about because of Abraham, we are all, despite who we are, or because of who we are, we are all part of that family of God, and let's embrace that. That you remember that other people are your family. I know when you've done a good deed on the street with somebody you've never seen, it makes you feel good. That's true. It's, whenever we serve somebody with the heart of just to serve them, it's hard to not be overblessed by what they do. We, this past Sunday, we served communion. We were starting a new thing with our, anyone who is ordained elder or deacon can um, go out and serve communion. And so we've been working on that with Carol Mead and Winnie McClave. They, I don't have to ever worry about what I need to be doing. They'll tell me. So it works out really great. <laughs> works out just perfectly. We put together a group, and they went out, and they served people. And I said, one of the things you're going to see as you read Scripture, as you talk, and as you pray with them, that they are so grateful that you are there. But you will be doubly blessed simply because they're going to know the scripture you're reading to them. I'll, I'll never forget that the first time I went to read, and I thought, oh, I'm going to read Psalms 121, and this is a really good scripture. And, you know, I look up to the hills from where will my help come? It comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And I'm saying this, and their lips are moving. They know the scripture. And I, I barely could get through it. I, I couldn't see I couldn't see what I hadn't memorized, but they had for the tears in my eyes. We're always blessed. And as a family of God, we have a great opportunity to welcome people in. So as we look at this, let me tell you a little bit about um, Amos. You have notes on this, but um, let's go ahead and, and walk through this. He is from a little town, Tekoa, that is uh, close to Bethlehem. He's in the southern kingdom. 
He is um, kind of a farmer. We don't know if he owned the stuff or he just worked with um, the, the um, flocks that he took care of and, and the fig trees that he also took care of, but that's what he did. He wasn't like one of these people that grew up as a priest and grew up and was called out to be a prophet. He was, he was just a regular person, but well-educated because the writing that he uses shows that the words that he gives shows a certain amount of... Um, uh, intellect prowess and who he is. So Amos is a person who is in the southern kingdom. He is at first kind of referring to the northern kingdom. They're just having a really difficult time understanding who they are. So we're in the 8th century before the common era or, or BC, uh, before Christ, and it's a time when the people of Israel, both both north and south, but north is more evident, they are having a wonderful time with great affluence in who they are. And they have been very productive. They are very safe, even though the kingdoms are divided. Right now, nobody's uh, quite attacking them. Um, that will soon change. But they are feeling good about who they are and all their accomplishments to the detriment of the poor and the oppressed. In fact, they have begun to use and abuse them. And they have such an arrogance about who they are and what they have accomplished. And I think, but by the grace of God, we need to remember, most of us, um, without any help of our own, were able to um, be born into a good family with good support that allowed us a good education or great opportunity, or we were giving brains beyond uh, what we really deserved. And, uh, and we have to be really, really careful that we don't assume that anyone else who doesn't have that, well, too bad for them. And if they just tried harder, that's not the scenario. But that was their scenario. That was the way Israel felt, like, wow, here, here we are. We are just really doing well and too bad for the poor. And so there's something that God calls us to. What, are the, what is a golden rule that we all know? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. <laughs> and what's the second rule? Never ask a question you don't know the answer to, right? What's the second part of that? And who is your neighbor? Everybody. Why don't we get that? We don't. I hate to tell you this. We don't get that. Just went to a meeting on uh, immigration, legal immigration, so don't make your heart patter too much but more non-believers are engaged in helping the rights of those who would like to sojourn in our country than Christians. Why is that? I think we get the first, but we don't always put into practice that love your neighbor as yourself. That's part of what was going on here. They were doing it by elitism. So Amos comes to talk to them, and he comes to tell them, really, Really, let me just tell you what you've done and what you haven't done. And the thing that's really amazing is he walks them through in these three verses. So the first two verses, he kind of condemns everybody. By the way, he just takes all the nations that have always been against Israel and he kind of lines them up. It, to me, it looks like a big you. Or I should do it this way. It looks like a big you. So you folks, you folks, you folks, you folks, you folks have um, gone against God. You foreigners have gone against God. But Israel, and he's talking both northern kingdom of Israel and southern Judah, you who should know better have disobeyed. So here's what he said. He talks about um, 
that I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. O oh, people of Israel, the God has spoken against you, and I have brought you out. And if you look down, there are, um, they have rejected God's law, they have contradicted God's salvation, and consequently forfeited God's favor because of their behavior. It's almost, a, they're both natural and logical consequences. If you speed, Jan Farley, you will get a ticket. I'm reminded of that every several years when I get pulled over for speeding. It's just like, wow, that's a really logical consequence of going too fast. It's my confession for today. Don't ask too much other about my <laughs> sinful life. Um, there, uh, that's a logical consequence. There might be some natural when you tell your children not to do something and say, okay, because you've done this, now this is being withheld from you. You know, you stole those cookies, you said you weren't, you knew not to do that, you lied about it, and so now here's a uh, natural punishment from that might be that they're sicker than a dog because they ate too many cookies, but the other might be how they're disciplined. So. Amos is talking to them about how they're going to be disciplined. And um, he talks about transgressions. Now, he, and he talks about, before that, in the first couple of chapters, there are, he calls them three transgressions and then there's a fourth. And I want us to understand a little bit about the way that the ancient culture thought. And that is, three does not mean literally three, until we get in trouble. Three is more than one. In fact, there are eight transgressions that he mentions before you get to this um, part of the book of Amos. So he's just telling him, there's a number of things that you've done wrong. And three is not like the 40 that's like a number way beyond belief. And 40 is also not literal. Here's a good way to look at three. Uh, Jesus was in the tomb three days. Remember they said that? Well, there's no way Jesus was in the tomb three days. We know that he got in there Friday, got out Sunday. That's not three days. That's not three nights. You can't do it. Don't try and do the math. Don't tell me it starts at Thursday. Don't. It just. It means a short time, but it means more than one. Okay. Does that make sense? The fourth is like over beyond these. There is a significant transgression that you've been engaged in, and that's what he's looking at right here. And these are um, the fourth transgression. Really has five parts, which of course makes it even more confusing. But. It's just hang with me because it's important when we begin to understand what's happening when he's calling the family, the people of God, back together and what he's reminding them of. He presents these five truths. Four are just um, what you would call uh, descriptive. They're just kind of who the people are, and the fifth is the consequence of their behavior. Okay, so let's look back. Open up your Bibles again, if you would, um, and look at that Amos uh, 3 Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. He's just named them. They are a people that are a um, people of election through Abraham. They've been given that name, Israel. They are special people. They are, O people of Israel, against the whole family. They've been adopted. They not only have been called by God as part of Abraham's family, they have been adopted into God's family. So God has them in a special, special place for them. And then he said um, that, you know, you're, you're the family. I have redeemed you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You did not do that. I did that. I have redeemed you. I have taken care of you. And, and then he goes on to say, so does that make sense to you? 
called by God through Abraham, a special people, a family of God. He has saved them. He has rescued them out of the oppression of Abraham. I've done all this for you. On, you only, verse 2, have I known of all the families on the earth. You have uniquely been called my family. Do you get it? <laughs> I've invested in you. I've loved you. I've called you out. I've rescued you. I've done all these things. Those are four truths about God. Here's the fifth truth. I will punish you for your sin. The sin of ignoring those former four things. As if somehow your, your relationship with me allows you to be disobedient. Uh, we love to talk about PK, preacher's kids. My, you know, and like, oh, those preacher kids, they think they can get away with everything. My kids excelled at that, by the way, because they, their spiritual gift to excel at trying to get away because their mom was a preacher. We don't really have to do that. We don't have to obey. We have, you know, it's kind of, it makes everybody else look really good about their kids. So my kids ended up okay. It's all right. But they were full of shenanigans when they were young. Um, actually, they're still kind of full of shenanigans, but they're nice about it now. All right, so... God will punish them for their sins. Now, we don't like that. I mean, I don't like that. I love, I love Sunday morning. I love our confession time. Number one, because we're not pretending like we don't sin, even though we're redeemed. We are justified through Christ and Christ alone. That's what Galatians is all about. But we are redeemed, and yet we still stumble. Given the opportunity, you know, and it's, uh, it, God's, doesn't care what the sin is. It just, God cares that you're not in line with his will and what he wants us to do. So when we come Sunday morning, we say, here's a time of confession. That's really both uh, telling. <laughs> oh, I guess I need to confess, but it's also freeing. I get to, again, say to God in, in community, forgive me. And as a community, forgive us. But we sin, and God is just warning them. There's a punishment there. So there we go, one more happy camper scripture that Jack always lets me teach on. There, so you have Amos. Any thoughts on Amos? Does it make sense to you what Amos is doing? You, to be a prophet is not popular. You know, in the New Testament, it talks about spiritual gifts, and next week we're talking about body parts. And um, I don't know anyone who really would love the gift of prophecy because you're just not very popular, honestly. Because a prophetic word is normally to pronounce what God is doing and is going to do. And that's not fun. But that's what Amos was called to do, and he was faithful to do that. All right, let's go to Mark. In Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, I, I would like to just unpack a little bit about that scripture here. I'll tell you the story again. Here Jesus is talking to a group of disciples, the Pharisees are there, people are there, but they're people that are hungry, not so much the scribes, but the disciples and the others around, they are hungry to hear from Jesus. They want to know what is it that we should do. They want that renewal. They want that relationship. He's talking to them. And from the outside, his mom and brothers and, uh, show up. His family shows up. We're of the Protestant tradition. We are of the tradition of looking at Scripture and saying, yep, he really did have other siblings. And they are flesh and blood from Joseph and Mary. And they're, all, and they're coming to see him. Joseph is not in the picture, probably older. Uh, men tended to be older than their brides who were married sometime between 12 and 15, and uh, men closer to 20, but um, he's not in the picture. So we know it's, it's his mother 
and brothers have come to see him. And they go, well, they're outside. They're waiting to see you. So like the whole world should stop because this is your family. And Jesus stops and he looks around. He goes, well, no, this is my family. Those who obey the will of God. So that's that's the piece we just read. Let's back up to the beginning of the chapter. And if you want to open your Bible to the beginning of the chapter and look at it with me, uh, you're welcome to do that. Um, the, the issue is Jesus begins to do ministry. And Mark, by the way, is in a hurry. So uh, both Matthew and Luke draw. That's a tradition. They kind of draw from him. There's some discussion about that. Almost everyone agrees it is John Mark who wrote this. There was a theologian who came after um, within the first uh, second century who was writing who said, Everything shows that it would be John Mark that we know in Acts, who's the author of this. John Mark, or Mark as he was really known, is in a hurry to give you the facts about who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is coming. And he's not just for Jews. He's for the whole world. He really wants you to know this. You don't have a birth scene with this, okay? You have Jesus starting his ministry. And Jesus doing the stuff that he's supposed to do. And by the way, here's another. So we have um, plain old Amos, who's a sheep herder, whatever, um, brought in to be a prophetic word, just a commoner. Mark, who, by the way, might have been, it's, it's like a we don't know, but it's an interesting point. In the book of Mark, the last, almost the last, almost the whole third of the book is about the last week of Jesus' life. I said that correctly. The Passion Week takes up almost a third of Mark. That's how important that is for Mark to get that information across to you. And in that Passion Week, if you remember, when Jesus was arrested, there was a young man who ran away. He saw the arrest, and then he ran away. And and tradition would have it that that might well have been Mark. He was probably a very young man. And we also believe that Mark was written very, very early on, possibly as early as the 50s um, in uh, the common era, definitely um, before the fall of Jerusalem, which was in uh, 70. And so he probably wrote that early, so he was a young man when he first started doing ministry. He was also under the tutelage or the care of those who were older, Barnabas, If you remember Barnabas and Paul in Acts and the references in here, if you want to go back and look at that. So John Mark is the one that first went with Barnabas and Paul on a trip and he got cold feet and went home. And later on in Acts chapter 12, Paul goes, I don't want him with me. Or later on in maybe 13, I don't want John Mark to come because he bailed on us. He's not trustworthy. Forget about him. Well, later on in the New Testament, Paul writes and says, give my best to all the people and to Mark who has done well to serve. Never give up on anyone. Never give up on anyone who is doing ministry. Most of us learn ministry by failing, hopefully forward, not backwards. But we learn ministry normally by stumbling along. And so here's, here's John Mark who writes this gospel, and I just think that's incredible. Well, in, the, in this chapter 3, when he's beginning, he's telling you what's going on with Jesus. So the first thing that's going on is that he's healing. So he heals this withered hand, and, um, and people are watching, as people love to watch. And um, stretch out your hand, he heals. The Pharisees went out immediately 
uh, they're not really happy with what he's doing because they don't like this and they're trying to figure out how they're going to stop him. And then he goes and he talks to a multitude at the seaside. So he's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. That is the job of a, both a pastor, both a prophet, both a community of believers. Jesus modeled what we should be doing. So he's modeling that for us. And then he finds the 12 folks and he appoints these 12 guys. We're a pretty eclectic group together to be his disciples. And he sees in them the future. Not necessarily how they're doing currently, but their potential. And so he calls them together. And then uh, he gets blamed he goes back to his home, and um, there's so many people around that, that want to see him and want to know what's going on. And if you look with me, please, just in verse 20 and 21, um, then he went home, and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people was, were saying, he has gone out of his mind. Okay, so then the scribes and the Pharisees come, and they go, you're healing people on, in the name of Beelzebub, which is, you know, like evil, Satan. You're doing this with evil spirit. That's how you're doing this. And Jesus very politely goes, don't be daft. You know, you're going to divide a house if you do that. You, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't go against yourself. Like if this person is demon possessed, why would a demon come and exercise that? That's, you just, it doesn't make sense. So he has all these conflicts going on. And then we move into this very short verses 31 through 35, where Jesus is talking and um, he's been confronted by uh, his uh, people who think he's gone crazy, his family who's very worried about that, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes who thinks he's demon-possessed and he's not. Don't say son of God. Don't say son of man. Don't put those in there for this guy. He's a, he's a fake. He's demon-possessed, all these things. And Jesus is confronting that. And then he goes in verse um, 31 through 35, his mothers and brothers come and they're standing outside. Now, remember, I just read to you, why are they there? Because they kind of want to stop him because people think he's out of his mind. That's a very important thing when you're thinking, why did they come to see him? We're thinking, how would you be so mean? It's her mom. I mean, for Pete's sakes, everybody lets her mom in. <laughs> That's why we're moms. No. They're worried about Jesus. They're not saying that they think he's out of his mind, but they're really worried for him, and they need to stop this. And so they're coming just to check in on him. And so they come and they go, your family's outside. And here's some things that are very, very interesting as we look at this. The crowd's sitting around him. They ask about your mother. And he said, um, your mother and your brothers are outside. And that's that word behold. Now, Rick gave me grief because I put in the Greek demonstrative particle. And he goes, Jannie, just talk like people don't study Greek, okay? Because nobody studies Greek for the most part, and that's not helpful. So... Nevertheless, a demonstrative particle means, here's the six o'clock news. Look, here's your mom. Here's your, here, here are your brothers and sisters. They're all here. They're here to see you. It's just what they're seeing. They've arrived. And Jesus sees them. And then he, but he looks around, not at his mother and brother and sisters who are outside, or his mother and brother who are outside. He looks around the room, the people sitting around him, 
And the word that Jesus uses is behold. And that's the word. They've taken it out of the scripture. It's implied, but in Greek, it would, it's there. Um, but it's slightly different, used here in verse 34. When he said, who are my brothers and sisters? Verse 34, and looking at those who sat around him, he said, behold, here are my brothers, here are my mother and my brothers. Now that's an aorist imperative. So imperative we get. It's like, this is the way it is. The aorist imperative means it's already happened. Not let my mom and brothers have just shown up and they're outside. That's the six o'clock news. But what I'm saying to you is, behold, these people are already. They're already in. They're already here. They are my mother and my brothers. It's, a, it's a, almost like a past tense. But look, guys, behold, look around you. Here, here are my mother and my brothers. And you know how I know that? You who are telling me who's on the outside over there? I'm telling you that because whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so this is a trick question. What is the will of God? I gave you the answer earlier. <laughs> what is the will of God? Okay, to love the Lord your God with all your... You know, if this were, you have to say it with conviction, guys. To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the will of God. It's so simple. And we have everything that, that was ever written in the Old Testament was to help us do that. Ten Commandments are the best example of that. But all of that. And what is Jesus? What is the will of God? To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. What is it that we say God is love? What is it that we bring? The love of God without distinction. Without distinction. Well, let me just tell you a little bit about the uh, Jewish tradition, the tradition that is still very current. On Mondays, I have the privilege, and I kid you not, I'm, I'm over the moon excited to this. Every Monday now, I meet with um, our music director, our contemporary worship director, our soundboard guy, Drew Middleton, newly wed Drew Middleton, who still has time for us, and uh, Danielle, who is uh, the one who works with both worship and arts and with uh, me um, in doing work. And we sit down and we go over the service that we just had and we look at what's coming up and we kind of unpack the scripture and we kind of talk about it. Well, if you don't know JP, JP is um, Lebanese. And um, when I said, you know, in the Jewish tradition, you have families and they all kind of live in close proximity in the times of Jesus. He goes, no, no, they still do that, Chan. It's like family still, they still do that. So it was just really, really cute. But, but it was something he could really identify with. And that's exactly what you do. The community back then was that you had the mom and dad and the grandma and grandpa and the, and the great grandparents if they were around. And you had your aunts and uncles and they all kind of lived in community together and you all kind of took care of each other. When I went to Egypt last year, uh, Ram, Ramez, who was uh, our tour guide and just phenomenal lover of Jesus, when we went to his church, we met his bride, um, and uh, we just had a, a great, great time with them. And until the day he married, he lived with his mother. And until the day she married, she lived with her family. And they are within close proximity of where her, their families still are because that's what you do in the Middle Eastern culture. 
Now we went to some of the poorest places in Cairo. And in Cairo, their buildings are um, very high and they grow every year. They just add stories. And by the way, their animals are in their homes with them. And so you look down, we're up high on this cliff and we're looking down over there. I'm running your, your Christmas nativity scene, folks. Imagine the animals in the home because that's what it was. Um, so you're looking down and you're seeing these goats and the pigs, they kind of keep a little lower, but you have the goats and in, in, mostly goats, few sheep maybe, um, who are in the homes. Uh, but they keep building up because when your son marries, he's going to bring his wife there and they need a room and so you just keep building up. They're not, I mean, earthquake, praise be to God, there are no earthquakes in Cairo, but the entire town would probably be flattened. But that's what you do. That's your family, that's your community. So we all get that, okay. Um, and there was a time, you know, when I was young and, um, and much more adventuresome. And so in seminary, we, um, I thought, wow, with Bruce and Lena, it's my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, lover of Jesus. Um, let's, let's like get a house and, and have like this community living together with families who are both faith and believers. And like, you know, that's a nice idea, but mm, no, <laughs> we're not really going to that. So, but what we did do is in seminary, we had, a downstairs apartment of all women who worked in ministry, and then another apartment, there were the guys who worked in ministry, and then two other apartments, married couples. And we all lived in this apartment complex at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, and we all did ministry together, but we had a fellowship together, and we really understood that family. Where Jesus is expanding the family that they kind of got an idea with, but much greater than anybody thought about, especially given the difficulty, if you think back to Amos, when you had the northern and the southern kingdom, and the tribes split because they were very tribal. And sometimes we do the same thing, but Jesus is calling us, saying, hey, here are my real brothers and sisters. Here's my real mother. Here's my family. My family is so much bigger it's those that do the will of God. So then we ask the question, how am I doing that will of God? How's that going? How does that look for us as a community of faith here at Village Church? How well do we do that? Most segregated, you'll hear it Sunday morning, place on the face of the earth is worship service on Sunday morning. We just don't quite get that yet. But God is not done with us. We have time to love our neighbors and to love one another. All right, let's look at Galatians. How am I doing? Jack went a really long time. You could probably email, cut that out of there when you do this, Adrian. But I got to watch Jack. He is really good at teaching, is he not? He's like, wow, this is so good. I love watching Jack teach. All right, Galatians, don't be deceived. Don't be daft. Um, he's... he's talking to them because when Paul writes Galatians, he is spicy. He is so tired of these people who have been so influenced by the Judaizers who say, yes, Jesus is the way, but oh, by the way, also keep going with all these rules that you had in your tradition as Jews. And um, he's saying, don't, don't forget those. You still want to keep those. And Paul is going, no. This is very, very important. The Christology in Galatians is in just so important. If you look down at that second bullet, 
um, that I have on your back page there. Paul was instructing them, as with us, that they are sanctified not by legalistic works, but by the obedience that comes from faith in God's work for, in, and through them by the grace and power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Christ has done the work for us. We need not do any more. So when Paul writes to them, he's not very patient with them because doggone it, they're mixing things up and they're influencing in a way that is not helpful. Either Christ is sufficient or he's not. And we say Christ is sufficient. Our sanctification is not our salvation. It merely is an expression of appreciation because we've been justified by faith. We want to look and be and move more and more like Jesus. That's what he's calling them to do here in Galatians. So again, he's using the, um, as often used in, in scripture, an agrarian uh, metaphor. Most of us are not farmers, but those who live in the ranch that have, I know that some of you can grow plums because you're in a warmer climate than where I live, which is closer to the coast and it doesn't work. And I learned that from, from uh, someone in this room who said, no, you can't grow plums in, by the beach, Janet. It's just too cold. But if you're a farmer, you understand everything that goes on and you know how important it is to sow well because that's what you're going to reap. And how many of us have, um, have heard of the, the term uh, sowing wild oats? You know, just get that out of your way because those are not things that are going to last. But in a sense, it would almost seem like that's what they're doing. Are you sowing wild oats? Are you being so silly in what you're doing? And so he's calling them back together. Um, we all have false steps. We all make mistakes, but he's trying to get them to do things correctly. And the language he's using in, when he says, don't be deceived, that's very strong language. We just don't get it there. Don't be daft. Don't be an ignoramus. It's strong. He's saying that don't fool yourself and don't you dare mock God as if you could get away with sowing things that are not helpful, with living your life in a lifestyle that is not meant for what God wants you to do. And so he gives them this warning and says these are some uh, false steps and that there is a sense of call, a practice to live each day in the spirit and not in the flesh. And so um, the word family here is described as we look at this, if you look at your scriptures, so let us not grow weary in doing what is right for we will reap at harvest time. He's saying that whatever you do in the flesh is going to be in the flesh reaped, and whatever you do in the spirit, wherever the spirit is leading you to sow seeds, to do that, as Peggy said earlier, to go out and do something good, that's sowing good seed, and the harvest will be plentiful. The generations behind us, as I look around this room, I think I'm safe to say that, that our kids and our kids' kids want to do good, and they, they tend to do it without faith. But we have something to do uniquely because of our faith that's bigger than us just feeling good. It's because we're building kingdom presence. It's because we're pronouncing the kingdom come. Because we are showing the love that God has given us to other people as we go out and we give that to others. So don't grow weary in doing what is right. Don't say, don't say oh good, well I did that, I'm done. I'm done for, you know, I just served here and I well, I don't have to worry about that for a while. The question is, 
what, don't ever grow weary of that because the Holy Spirit is going to empower you. You're going to have the energy to do that. Don't do it because you feel obligated. Don't do it because you want people to give you accolades. You're answering to God. Do it because it's what we do as a family of God. And then whatever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those in the family of faith. So we're just called, by the time you're in the New Testament, you are a family. It's not just this group of eclectic people out there. You're called the family of God. You're put together. But don't lose sight of that word, all. And I think sometimes, um, there was, I, and I've talked about this before, it's so many years ago, I don't even remember the um, musician, vocalist's name, but um, he had a, a, a song that um, basically said, only drink milk from a Christian cow. <laughs> well, and that's part of our problem, is that we get so caught up and staying within the family of God that all our friends are Christians. All our, everything that we do is related around Christians. That's a great thing because we get that family. They're kind of who the family is. But you know what? That's what also keeps us from sharing the gospel because we already know it. Because, well, Amy, you know Jesus, so yeah, come, you know, I want to hang with you because you get it and I don't have to explain myself and everything else. But care for all people because the way in which we care for the other people around us who do not yet know Jesus is the greatest witness we have. But don't neglect the family of God too. See what we need here. That's why my two good friends bug me about homebound communion. It's more than just you, Jan. Let the rest of us in on this. <laughs> you know, because we can go out and do things together. We can go out and make a difference in the lives of our Christian community as well as other people because what is the will of God? As yourself. There you go. Love God, love your neighbor. That just is so simple. And we, it's easy, and you know why it's easy? Not because we do the works theology, we sow our own oats, but because we go on the power of the Holy Spirit. So you guys, if you want a good humor, you should see me before I teach or preach. I am like on my knees, desperate, Holy Spirit of God, please, 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 <laughs> fill me, lead me, teach me, help me, help me, help me. Everywhere we go, Holy Spirit of God, lead. Lord Jesus, may you be known in all we do. And yes, invite those people into your family of God so that they could see what that family looks like. Now here's my question. How many of you grew up in the church? How many of you raised your children in the church? How many of your children are at church every Sunday? How many of your children are in church frequently? Here's the, here's, the, here's the problem I think we all face is that the two things that Rick and I taught our kids along with the Lord's Prayer and 23rd Psalm and Scripture and going to church every Sunday because we are the Farleys and that's what the Farleys do. <laughs> My kids are not in church on Sunday. Jordan does work. I'm off to church on Sunday. He looks at me and goes, have fun at churchy-poo. He walks out the door. <laughs> like, 
Thank you, Jordan. I will. He likes Easter. He likes Christmas. He likes Mother's Day. He's a C-E-O-M. Christmas, Easter only, and Mother's Day. Uh, he at least has a good excuse. The one thing that we taught our children, and I keep praying that it takes more and more, I see glimpses of it every once in a while. Love God. It's your number one call in life. And love all people. So change that neighbor, because we get caught up in that very quickly. Love all people. Love God, love all people. Those are the two, those are the thing I cared about the most. Questions? People saw on the news this week that Ellen DeGeneres was at a football football game with sitting George next to Bush. George Bush. Yes. And got a lot of flack for it. And the statement she made was absolutely beautiful. She said, you, you, you can be friends with people that you don't agree with. And just because you don't think the same doesn't mean you can't be friends. And she says, when I say you need to love everybody, I mean everybody. And right. it was really a beautiful statement. It's a really beautiful thing. And as far as I know, I don't know what her faith is, I don't if she has a faith, but there we go. So, <laughs> so when heathens, or when the worldview, <laughs> are out there telling us what we should do as Christians, that's a good word. And I did see that, and I thought, God bless you, Ellen De DeGeneres. I, you know, but we could do the same thing because we could show it. We could show what we're doing. I, the other thing I just have to share with you, because he's my hero, uh, Jimmy Carter. So, um, yeah, we all go, and I mean, many of us were not thrilled, some of us were, when he was president. But let me tell you, in terms of longevity, so it talks about he had cancer at 95, he did something else in 2015, and last year, something else happened to him. Then he just got hurt, and here he is, working with Habitat for Humanity, which, by the way, is November the 9th here at church. We're building, um, uh, what are we building? Uh, those little playhouses. I had a daughter who was a, a sports jock, and I was, so I didn't play dolls or play in doll houses. Or, but these are big houses. These are kids, you know, like little children's playhouses. We're building those, and we're also going off-site to build that. But the coolest thing, if you saw on Facebook, so it's a good reason to be on Facebook, not too many other I can think of, to be honest with you, but that's one of them. You have Jimmy Carter, and there's one where he's hammering, and then there's another little picture, and you get a shot at him. He's got a patch right here and completely bruised, and he's out there doing the work because he believes in Jesus, and believing in Jesus means as long as I can do it, I'm going to do it. Go out into the world and be a blessing to people and invite them into the family of God, all people. Amen.